following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Part part of what triggered or inspired, maybe inspired is not a good word, but moved me to share this uh, and and to look at this passage is that, you know, just a week before Christmas or so, there was the shooting of the school in Connecticut, right? And at that school, a gunman came in and uh, murdered a whole classroom of first graders. Twenty kids were killed. It's interesting, scholars believe that uh, in Bethlehem, given this, the, the number of people that probably would have lived there at that time, it probably would have been about 20 children that would have been killed by Herod. And uh, it's interesting as this, this uh, story unfolded in the United States of this horrible shooting, and they you know, post up these pictures of these little first graders, innocent, innocent children, right, who uh, it's just mind-boggling that anybody could, could harm them, much less... Uh, put a gun to them and shoot them, and I and and you know the day it happened, news announcers. Uh, in fact, I saw a news clip, uh, news reporters asking the question, "Where is God in all this?" Right? How could God let something like this happen? And to be honest, you know, I kind of resonate with that. It's something so horrible and so tragic. You say. Why does God not stop something that horrible and that evil? How does God let this go? And we live in a world where there is tragedy. And not only that, but over the holidays I heard of several other just tragic deaths. Uh, Not always murder, but tragic deaths. People who die, who are innocent, who, who shouldn't die, right? And the question always comes back to us, where is God in all this? And as I thought about what happened in the school shooting in the United States, this story came to me, right? And I thought it's very striking and, 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 and important that, part, that this is really part of the Christmas story. That it's not just the, the fuzzy little sheep and the nice little lambs and the stars and the angels singing, you know, singing praise songs and all the things that make Christmas happy. It is also part of the story that, that Herod brutally murdered 20 or more or less babies, right? Hunting down Jesus. So I thought, well, I have to preach this. Um, so I decided I was going to preach it. Then when I got committed too far into it, I wish I hadn't. <laughs> um, because the truth is, um, that question, where is God in the midst of all this? Why doesn't God stop it? I'll tell, you, I'll, I'll tell you right up front, there will never be a satisfying answer to that question. Right? We're never going to go, oh, oh, well, I feel a lot better about this now because I know the right answer to that question. Right? Anytime people die in tragic ways, uh, there's no good explanation for it or thing that comforts us. Um, and C.S. Lewis kind of paints the problem in, in these terms quite well. And when the world asks this question, when we ask this question, it boils down to this principle or this truth. Uh, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do whatever he wished. Okay, you, got the, you got the logic so far? God's good. He would want to make all of us happy. If he were almighty, he would be able to do what he wanted. 
Okay? But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Right? Okay? The creatures are not happy. And when things like this happen, we're not happy. And for the parents of those children, for people who lose loved ones like this, there's no happiness in it, right? It is tragic no matter how you slice it. And so we come back to this thing. Could God really be good? Is he really powerful? Why doesn't he stop it? Well, as I said, um, in a way I kind of wish I hadn't jumped into this passage because when I got to the end of it, I didn't come up with a magic answer that's satisfying, right? So I throw that out there to tell you, if you're looking for some great answer that goes, well, I can write this in my next prayer letter and say, this is why there's suffering in the world, you'll be greatly disappointed. Um, But I do think it's significant that this kind of suffering and tragedy is very much a part of Scripture, and it's part of even the Christmas story. So let's look at it and see what, um, what Matthew might teach us about this kind of tragic suffering and what Jesus has to do with it. And as we do that, let's just begin with prayer. Father, we do uh, come before you, come before your word, and honestly, we do have questions sometimes when we see around us uh, suffering and pain, when we see what seems like senseless tragedy and death. And Lord, we do ask the question, where are you in the midst of it? Why, why do you let these kind of horrible things happen. These things that leave us as your creatures very much not happy, very much uh, grief-stricken and in sorrow. And uh, Lord, we know that the answers are not simple and that your wisdom is far above ours. But we do ask that you would speak to us through your word and help us to at least gain a new perspective on what suffering means in this world and your purpose in it. So we ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so the story goes like this, uh, you know, uh, Joseph and Mary have this baby. Mary has the baby. Joseph watches. He's a good spectator. Um, that's the way it always works. And, uh, things are going well. The, the wise men visit is, and as we know, um, from the timetable that it's, it, it was a year to two years after Jesus was born. So he's now kind of a toddler. The wise men show up, as we looked at last week, and they come with um, these astonishing gifts and really news in search of a king. And all through this, Matthew is trying to establish that Jesus is the legitimate rightful heir to David's throne, that he has the right to claim the throne as the Messiah. And so the, the Magi are a significant part of, of that proof. Here's these guys coming, this emissary coming from a foreign country to give gifts to a newborn king even though the people in Jerusalem are oblivious to it. The Magi leave, and immediately the angel of the Lord appears to, Mary, uh, to Joseph in a dream and says, Run! Flee! Get out of here! Because Herod is searching for the child, and he's about to kill him. And uh, there's a great sense of urgency in the, in the, in the an, an, angel's words. And so Joseph jumps up in the middle of the night, grabs Mary, and it says at night they flee from Bethlehem and head out to uh, Egypt. And literally, uh, running for their life. And I titled this point, God on the Run, because it really is what's happening here. God has come in the form of man, God incarnate, and before he's even two years old, he is on the run for his life. Right? 
Very interesting picture. God Almighty, powerful, created the universe, but now He's put Himself in a place as a human being where He is very vulnerable and where He is literally running for His life. He is being hunted by His enemies. And in this case, it's Herod who is threatened by Jesus' claim to be king, to be a legitimate heir to His throne. And Herod is threatened by this. And Herod does not mess around. He's a guy who kills his own firstborn son and his favorite wife, okay, Um, I hate to think what he did to his less favorite wives, but he kills his favorite wife. He is a bloodthirsty killer, and he has no qualms about hunting down and killing Jesus. So the angel warns them, and they flee to Egypt. And then it says, interestingly, in verse 15, that this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Okay, the word of, of the Lord through the prophet, which was, out of Egypt I called my son. Um... And you see this picture of Jesus uh, some, uh, fulfilling some of the roles like Jacob, like the Joseph who was the son of the first Jacob of the nation of Israel who fled uh, to preserve their life to Egypt right during the famine way back in Genesis. And Jesus is retracing their steps. Jesus is taking that same exact journey that the early patriarchs did many thousands of years before him. And... Uh, and he quotes from uh, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that out of Egypt I called my son. And we get this picture of Jesus fulfilling this prophecy of uh, being led out of, called out of Egypt, just as Israel was called out during the Exodus. Right? Um, during that time, uh, they flee. Jesus escapes, uh, thanks to the help of the, of the angel. But uh, Herod realizes that he's been shafted by the Magi. The wise men were smarter than him. He should have known. When you're dealing with wise men, you know, you just got to be one step ahead of these guys. And he was not. And he catches on after a while. You know, they never, they never came back. They didn't send an email. They didn't even send a birthday card. They just left, right? And he realizes he's been tricked by these, these wise men. Uh, it's interesting, the word there can also be translated mocked, right? They kind of made a joke of him. And he was not the kind of guy you want to make a joke out of, right? And he is furious. He is going to get and accomplish his end. And he says, fine, you're not going to show me the two-year-old that's the, this anointed king? Doesn't matter. I'll just kill them all. I'll send orders, and I will have every male child, two years old and younger, rounded up in, in Bethlehem in the whole district, and I'll just kill them all. And that's exactly what he does. He sends soldiers, and they brutally take these helpless, young, you know, babies, and he brutally murders them, Um, And again, it says that this was done to fulfill prophecy. It says, this was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Um... It's fulfilling prophecy. Now, if you're going to talk to people about why they're suffering in the world, this is not a good answer. It's just fulfilling prophecy. You know, oh, God said this would happen. Don't you feel better now? No. She says, Rachel will not be comforted, right? Um, and it's, it's, again, it's a prophecy, right? And, and somehow, uh, this all fulfills this prophecy, Great weeping heard, and there's no comfort in, in this region of Bethlehem, Ramah. Um, t- 
time goes by, maybe a year or two, we know there's solid historical evidence that Herod the Great died in 4 B.C. So it's likely that Joseph and Mary and Jesus were not in Egypt very long, maybe a year at the most. And uh, during that time, Herod dies, um, and it's now safe for Jesus to return, for Joseph to return. An angel appears and, and instructs him, go back to Israel. So again, they rise, they pack their bags. This time there's no need to leave in the middle of the night, but they return uh, to, to Israel. They come into the land of Israel, land of Judah. Um, but they get rumors that Herod has been, uh, his, the successor to Herod, his kingdom has been broken up into three sections. And the section that is now Jerusalem and Bethlehem is under his son Archelaus, who was even more bloodthirsty and evil than Herod. Uh, when Archelaus first came into power, just to make a point, he rounded up 3,000 of the most prominent Jews he could find around Jerusalem and Judah and killed them, right? Happy, happy welcome to me being in power kind of thing, right? Just to make a point. Really also a charming guy. In fact, he was so wicked that uh, for the first two years, he was kind of on a trial probation period. The emperor heard how horrible he was. He deposed him. He says, you're, you're too wicked even for the emperor of Rome. Right? And he took him out and put in somebody else. Uh, so again, another angel appears and again warns Joseph, don't go to Bethlehem. It's not safe there. But you need to go to Nazareth. And again, it is to fulfill prophecy. Uh, and it says, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that, was, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene, somebody from Nazareth. Uh, he sent to this remote, obscure, out-of-the-way place, as far really from Jerusalem as you could get, and still be in the region of Israel, right, far away in Galilee, uh, out in the boonies. Um, and again, you've got Jesus now, he's maybe two, maybe three, still being hunted, still living at risk. Still not safe for him to go back to the regions around Jerusalem and Bethlehem because there are still people who could kill him. Okay, that's the world that God stepped into. Now, for the Jews who are looking for a Messiah, for the people reading the Gospel of Matthew for the first time who come from a Jewish background who are looking for a king, this is not really what you're expecting, right? This is not what happens to kings. Kings especially kings sent from God who have messianic aura, aren't supposed to be hunted criminals who are running for their life at every turn around every corner. So uh, Matthew's got, uh, he's got to make a, a case here that, uh, that this is legit, that, that there's not something wrong, that this is exactly what God planned from the beginning, and that he is a Messiah, but he's not the Messiah like they were picturing what they wanted and what they were picturing was a Messiah who would come, who would be born in a palace, who would have around him servants and wealth, and who from an early age would start to command true power as they saw it. Power like Herod had, right? Power like the Roman emperor had. That's the kind of Messiah they wanted. So this doesn't fit their picture. Here's this Messiah who's running for his life, who has seemingly no power who seems to be weak, innocent, helpless, right? Who ends up fleeing to the out-of-the-way place of Nazareth because that's the only safe place for him to be where he's in an obscure corner where nobody will notice him. Okay, that's not exactly grabbing power. 
That's not going to the places of influence. That's not shaking the nation up, right? That's hiding out, you know, in a closet. That's not the kind of king they're looking for. So Matthew has to prove or demonstrate that this is actually God's plan. That it was God's design from the very beginning for him to come to be born of a of a virgin to to take on human flesh and to put himself in harm's way to be a god who would be on the run a god who would be in peril a god who would whose life would be threatened daily uh, you know when people read this and, and you talk about where is god in all this uh, it is interesting that that the angel does rescue Jesus right and some would make the charge. Well, yeah, God takes care of himself. He rescues Jesus. But what about those other 20 children? Why didn't God send angels for them? But we know the rest of the story. That God is not sparing Jesus, not rescuing him. He's only delaying the inevitable. That the truth is, Jesus would be hunted his whole life. He would be hated by great and powerful people. And eventually, he would succumb to them. And they would capture him. They would drag him off as a prisoner and in bondage. And they would beat him. And he would suffer a horrific death. He would have been way better off dying by a quick sword when he was two. Right? Uh, God does not save Jesus. He only delays the inevitable. And these children being slain is a sign. It is a, a symptom of this world that Jesus has come into where they want to kill him. And ultimately... They will. So, so Matthew's got to build a case that this is indeed God's original plan from the beginning. And he does this by, in this passage, in the first and second chapter, uh, building his story around five major prophecies. And over and over again, he says these words. This was done to fulfill the word of the Lord. This was done to fulfill the word of the Lord. This was done to fulfill the word of the Lord. In other words, all through chapter 1 and 2, Matthew makes a very solid case that this is exactly what God had in mind. This is exactly what Messiah was intended to be and what it was really all about. Uh, Jesus running for his life is exactly what God designed. And it's interesting, um, the prophecies themselves are, 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 are interesting. And, and it says that, the, that they are fulfilled uh, what does that really mean? Do you ever think about that? Fulfilled. Well, what we tend to mean by that is this. What we think of is that the prophecy was accomplished as it had been predicted. All right? So it would be like this. If, I, if I'm a weatherman on TV and uh, I'm going to tell you the weather. It's easy in Thailand. <laughs> Tomorrow the sun's going to shine. It's going to be hot and not as humid because it's the dry season. Right? Tomorrow it will be that way. The next day, it will be the same. And the day after that, it will be just like the day before. Right? I could be a weatherman here. Now, I made a prediction. Right? So tomorrow when you get up, and sure enough, the sun comes up, and there's no clouds, and it's sunny, and it doesn't rain, and it turns to be 90 degrees, you'll say, Tim's prophecy was fulfilled. Right? His prediction came true. That's how we tend to use that word or think of that word. Right? A prediction that comes true. However, that's not actually what the word means in Scripture, often. Right? And it's certainly not what it means in Matthew chapter 1 and 2. Because the truth is that out of all five prophecies, only one of them is actually a prediction. 
In fact, most of them are not even prophecies. Most of them aren't even talking about any future events at all. Some are, but at least one or two of them are actually about things that happened in the past that they're giving God thanks for. Right? So how can it be a prophecy if they weren't actually predicting something that was going to happen? Well, you got to understand what the word fulfill means. The word fulfill means to complete or to bring to completion, to fill up something that is intended or designed. Okay? Let me illustrate it this way. When I was a kid, uh, we lived in the mountains, so there was lots of trees. And one of the things we loved to do was to build tree houses and forts. Right? That was just what it was. And um, when we would build these tree houses and forts, it, it, it essentially ended up to being about four or five boards kind of um, propped in trees, you know, and uh, it like a lumber yard, just like a lumber truck fell on the tree. And that's kind of, you know, what it, what it was. But what we had in our mind was actually this. Um, uh, here we go. That. Right? That's, that's, what we, that's what we envisioned. Right? Um, and it would take a carpenter to do that. Right? A really good carpenter, actually. Um, well, that's taking our attempt and fulfilling it, right? It's filling it up. It's making it everything that we had imagined, and actually even more so, right? Or maybe you've had this experience where you have read a book, or no, I'm sorry, uh, where you've had an idea or a thought. And for, the, for me, this is the experience of preaching, you know? I have these thoughts and these ideas, and I try to communicate them, Right? And afterwards, people talk to me and they say, that was really good. And they, they say what they heard and I realize they liked it, but they didn't hear what I was actually saying. I was actually saying something else, but they got this. And I'm hopeful that the Holy Spirit is in that somewhere, right? But then if you ever had that experience, you have these ideas and you try to explain it to people and they just kind of look at you and scratch their head because you just make mush of it, right? But then you read a book and, and this author just brilliantly says everything you've been thinking. And you love the book because he explains it crystal clear. And not only that, but he actually takes it far beyond what you had even conceived, right? He takes your point, but he builds on it and expands on it and fills it out. He fills it up. He fills up your idea, your concept. You go, wow, that is it. So then the next time you want to explain it, you just go to people, you got to read this book. I would tell you, but you won't understand. But this you can understand, right? Well, that's the idea behind filling it up, right? So he says, this was done, these things were done, so that Jesus might fill up what was spoken before, the word of the Lord, to complete it, right? To fill it out in its fullest, most complete form. So what does that mean? Well, let's look at a couple of these prophecies and see if we can understand a little more what, it, what he's saying. The first prophecy in chapter 1 um, says that... Uh, it comes from, comes from Isaiah 7.14, uh, which says this. King Ahaz, uh, um, well, to give the background, King Ahaz is being attacked by two kings that he dreads. Okay, that's, a, that's a, the scope or setting of Isaiah 14. And um, he's sure that he's going to be wiped out by these two kings. And so he goes to the prophets, and the prophets assure him that and God assures him that don't worry about these two kings. They're going to die really soon and they're not going to be a threat to you anymore. Right? But Ahaz is not convinced and he wants a sign from God 
So he asked for a sign and says, This is the sign that I will give to you. Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and she shall give birth to a son, and you shall call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Right? And so that's what happens. A virgin, not a virgin as in Mary, but a virgin as in a young maiden, gets pregnant, and she has a child. And before that child is two years old, the two kings that he fears die. Right? Right? So what's the, what's the scene here? It's the scene of somebody who's in serious trouble. Right? Their kingdom is being threatened, but along comes a promised child who's a sign of deliverance. Well, how does Jesus complete that? Well, it's not, this, is not a pro, this is not a prediction, per se, about Jesus' virgin birth. Now, of course, it's fulfilled in Jesus' virgin birth, but the prophecy or the, the context is King Ahaz. But what it means is this. Jesus completes that picture. Jesus fills up that picture in a, in a new way that gives it greater meaning and depth and significance and weight. We are in trouble. We are under attack. We are, we, and we ought to be fearful for our lives. But behold, a virgin will give birth to a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. There is coming a deliverer, a savior, through the virgin birth, who will rescue us, who will be God with us. Jesus fills up that picture, that pattern of something that happened in the Old Testament. The next prophecy uh, is about Jesus' birthplace. And this is the only one that's actually a true prediction, and the only passage that is what we call messianic. In other words, the context of this in Micah 5.2 actually is the coming of the Messiah. And if you read it, it's all about the coming of this Messiah. Uh, and it says, But you, Bethlehem, are not the least. Out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people. Right? That's how the wise men knew where to go. Uh, but what's interesting when you look at this, even though it is a prediction, and it is uh, fulfilled directly... What's interesting, when you look at the context of it, uh, notice what the backdrop of this prophecy is. Uh, Micah 4, 9-13, the previous verses say this, Why are you now screaming in terror, Israel? Have you no king to lead you? Have your wise people all died? Pain has gripped you like, women, like a woman in childbirth. Writhe and groan like a woman in labor, you people of Jerusalem. For now you must leave this city to live in the open country. Okay, why is Jerusalem in such pain? Why is there so much suffering in Jerusalem? Why are they crying out in agony? Well, he goes on and he answers. He said, you soon will be sent to distant Babylon. Okay, you're about to be exiled. Judah and Jerusalem, as you know it, is about to be wiped out. And you will be taken captive... And drug off to Babylon where you will live in exile as foreigners and strangers away from your home. Um, Micah 5, 1 and 2. Mobilize, marshal your troops. The enemy is laying siege to Jerusalem. They will strike Israel's leaders in the face with a rod. And then the prophecy. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all those people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel will come from you, one whose origin is from distant past. You get the picture here? Uh, Jerusalem is about to be drug off to exile, but in the midst of that, God gives the promise of a Messiah, a deliverer, who will rescue his exiled, alienated people. 
And of course, it's, it's not hard for us to imagine how Jesus fulfills that, how he fills up that prophecy, how we all have been drug off in exile. Uh, we have been taken captive by sin and death and by the world. And Jesus is the ultimate deliverer. Right? Next prophecy, Hosea 11.1. 1. Uh, Hosea 11.1 1 is looking back at the time when Israel was in bondage in Egypt. Another cruel leader named Pharaoh was also uh, slaughtering newborn babies, right? In the time of Moses. And that's how Moses, you know, Moses' story of escape because Pharaoh was killing babies in that time. And Israel was being oppressed by Egypt. But God raised up Moses and Moses led the people out of bondage, out of Egypt, right? And so Hosea 11.1 1 is looking back at God's mercy and favor in rescuing Israel. Um, and it says that he... he uh, he led his son out of Egypt, right? Uh, and God did that originally to renew uh, or really to make a new covenant with his people, a new covenant relationship with his people. And so Jesus comes out of Egypt as a picture, as the fulfillment, right, of the perfect one who will make a new covenant. You see, 11, Hebrew, Hosea 11 and 1 is not a prediction, right? It's not predicting, well, you know, this guy's going to be born in Bethlehem and then he's going to have to flee to Egypt and then he's going to have to, uh, you know, go from Egypt to Nazareth. It's not a prediction, right? But it's a word of God in which Jesus becomes the completer of it, fills it up with new meaning and truth and takes it to its fullest, farthest extent. That it's not just now about Egypt, but it's about a Redeemer who will deliver his people from their sin, from from ultimate death, not just the oppression and bondage of a corrupt government, from the, from the domain and kingdom of darkness, right? It has a deeper, fuller meaning in Christ. Uh, last one, actually there's two more, but the last one in Scripture is Jeremiah 31, 15. Uh, and it again depicts the, the lament of mothers in Israel bewailing their sons led off into exile. What, what's the context of this? Well, in Jeremiah 31... Uh, it's the same story. Israel, Judah, is about to be exiled. And Ramah would have been a city just north of Jerusalem where, Rachel, where Rachel's tomb was found. So the idea is that as the prisoners are gathered up in Jerusalem and they're marched north to Babylon, they will go by Rachel's tomb. And in her tomb, Rachel will weep for Israel as they are drug off to exile in Babylon. And there is grief and mourning because their sons are no more. The country is vacated of its people. And they are taken off captive as prisoners of war, exiled to Babylon. Right? Um, but it's interesting, even in that context, uh, in Jeremiah thirty-one sixteen, it says, But this is what the Lord says, Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you. Your children will come back to you from the distant land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children will come again to their own land. Right? Uh, the last prophecy, real quickly, is actually not found in the Bible. <laughs> it's a bit of a problem for the theologians and scholars because Matthew says it's a prophecy. We don't know where the prophecy is from. All right? but, but it says Jesus would be called a Nazarene. Uh, I think it pictures this. It pictures Jesus also living a life of exile. Right? He doesn't go to Jerusalem. He doesn't go to Bethlehem. He goes far away toward Babylon, 
towards Syria, right? Still in the region of, of, of Judah, but he's exiled, right? So what's the point of all this? I mean, all these prophecies, so it's like, okay, that's all so good. Um, but I want you to notice there's two themes that come out of this. And Jesus is, is completer or fulfiller of both of these themes, okay? So let me summarize it this way. The first theme is the theme of being held captive, oppressed, and bondage under attack, right? And every one of these prophecies, that's the context. The people of Israel, in some form or another, are being oppressed or attacked or drug off in slavery and in bondage. Now, what's remarkable to me is this. When God chose to come to earth, when he chose to take on human flesh and blood, when he chose to identify with us, he did not exempt himself from that pattern of human existence throughout the Old Testament and history. This had been true of Israel all along. They had been a people attacked. Even Abraham lived as an alien and a stranger in, in, in Israel. He was never a homeowner or landowner. Right? Uh, Jacob finally gets land. He finally buys a little parcel of land. But a famine comes, and he starves to death. So he is forced, along with Joseph and his brothers, to go to Egypt, right? where they eventually become prisoners and are now bond slaves of Pharaoh building his palaces. And Pharaoh himself is killing their babies. Right? And God rescues them. Throughout the first two chapters, Jesus steps in and walks through the path of Israel, becoming a hunted child, becoming one whose life is threatened, becoming an exile, becoming one who has to flee for safety to Egypt, who has to live exiled in Nazareth. Right? Uh, when people ask the question, where is God in the midst of suffering? First answer is say, you know, God is there suffering with us. God did not exempt himself from suffering. I don't know why people suffer, but I do know this. God suffers everything any human being ever has and more, right? Jesus suffered the worst death. Uh, he suffered the combined effects of what all the children did, right? His death was horrible. And God himself, the God who created the universe, chose to suffer. Chose to step into our world and to fully immerse himself in human suffering. Right? Uh, God the Father knows what it feels like to lose a son. To lose his precious, dearly loved son. And in some ways, because he is not flawed with sin like we are, Maybe he knows the sense of it far greater than any human being does because he experiences the fullness of it in ways we can't. Uh, maybe Jesus, likewise, suffered in ways we can't imagine because he was not jilted by sin and he uh, suffered fully as us. Um, so that's the first theme. Uh, the struggling, exiled, oppressed uh, people but secondly, each of those stories also has a picture of a deliverer, right? Somebody who would come who would rescue them out of their slavery, their bondage, and their oppression. And Jesus also is, the, of course, the fulfiller and completer of that picture. Uh, he is the greater Moses. Moses led his people out of Egypt, but not out of sin and darkness. 
Jesus leads us out of the kingdom of darkness. He is the greater Moses. Uh, He is the greater David. David was a great king who brought peace to the land of Israel. Uh, Jesus is the greater David who fulfills his kingly role infinitely in infinitely greater ways. He is in every way the fulfiller of these deliverers and rescuers. He is like all the judges, only greater. He is like all the kings, only greater. He delivers us. Uh, He is the Messiah. So, uh, how do you put all this together to answer our question, where is God in the midst of suffering? How could God create such a place, such a world, where such evil and horrible things could happen? Um, And as many people would say, you know, if there is a world full of such suffering and pain, then God cannot exist. Well, as I said, I can't answer the question, at least not in the remaining 10 minutes. Uh, There are good answers. They're not answers the world wants to hear, right? Because there are answers that attribute the right to rule to God, right? And it redefines happiness not in terms of our comfort, but in terms of God's glory. And what people really want to know is, why doesn't God give me what I selfishly want to make my life easy? Right? That's what we're really asking. How dare God mess with my freedom and my independence by wrecking my life? Right? Well, God does dare, and he has the right to, because his definition of happiness is much different than ours. His happiness is not defined in terms of our comfort or safety. It's defined in terms of our relationship with him as people who are recipients of his love and grace. Um, that's the short answer. Uh, but, but let me just make this, this observation. Uh, as I said, uh, the story teaches us that Jesus came as a suffering serpent who suffers with us. Um, when you encounter difficult things, when children die, when family die, when life just does not go well and, and it hurts, and you are struck with grief and deep pain and hurt, uh, I don't know why it happens, but I do know this. God knows what you are going through, right? We have a God who can identify with our hurt and pain. He is not removed, even though he's an infinite God who's transcendent above the world, far removed from us, because he came to be God with us, he is a God who is with us in our suffering. He suffered, he endured, he went through it all, and he knows what we are feeling. And he sympathizes, as Hebrews 4 says, he sympathizes with us in our weakness. Right? He comes alongside us, and he walks through the suffering with us. So for those families back in, uh, in, in, in Connecticut, which, by the way, I, I know some of you may know this, but one of the grandchildren was a grandchild of an OMF missionary. Um, they are Christian people, too. I mean, they're people who suffer. But God walks with them through that, that suffering, right? He is not a God who's distant and removed from it. He steps into our world with us, and he's promised to send his spirit who would be a comforter for us, right? So we can take great hope in that and we should not push God away in our suffering but we should embrace him right that's the time to grab hold even tighter of the one who knows he knows and he walks with us
Um, but there's a second part too. And this, um, you know, people have speculated, well, you know, God could have made a universe where all this bad stuff just wouldn't happen, you know, where, uh, you know, where if Herod went to kill babies when he swung the sword, the sword turns to jello, kind of like some kind of cartoon, you know, where, uh, where God makes every evil action and intention ineffective, you know, where, rubbets, where, where, where bullets turn into spitballs. Right? Wouldn't it be great if we all went to war just shooting spitballs at each other? How much happier the world would be? Um, people have asked, why couldn't God do that? Why doesn't God send an angel to warn all people of coming calamity? Right? He warned Jesus. Why couldn't he send an angel to all the other children as well? Um, well, there are lots of reasons why, and we can't go into it now. But why did God create a world where suffering was so much a possibility? Why did he create a world where wicked people could wield so much power against helpless, innocent children? Why did he make a place where free will could have such reign among wicked human beings that we could do this to each other? And some would say God was not thinking. He should have put restrictions on us. But some kind of limiting fact that when wickedness got to a certain point, you like just blow up or something. Why did he allow it to go this way? Well, I don't know all the reasons why, but I do know one reason why. And one reason is this. He knew that uh, if we were to be people with free will, he knew that we would choose to rebel against him. He knew that we would reject him and that we would bring on ourselves the curse of condemnation and sin. And he knew that there was only one way to undo that curse. Only one way to restore broken, sinful humanity to right relationship with him. And it was by sacrificing his own son. But for the sacrifice to mean anything, in order for him to be able to send his son to earth in human form, fully God, fully man, to lay down his life for us, he had to create a world where wicked people like Herod could kill innocent, helpless people like children in Bethlehem and like Jesus. Because those children in Bethlehem were a picture of what Jesus would become. A being who was in every way pure and innocent. No other adult is innocent like that. Like when, when adults die tragically, it's never quite as tragic as when a five-year-old dies. You know why? Because adults are just not as innocent. They're not as pure. They're not as untainted, right? And so we go, well, it's sad. But, but when a child dies, it's, it's horrible, especially at the hands of wicked people like this. It just seems senseless. Well, God created a world like that because he knew his son, who was perfectly innocent, pure, helpless, would come in weakness and he had to create a world where people would kill people like that. Where there would be Herods and Pharaohs and Pilots and Jewish leaders who would have no qualms killing a perfectly innocent good person, a perfect person, so that he could redeem us from our sins. Right? Um, we can't maybe answer the question, why did God die for us? But we can't answer, the, we can't say this. Uh, why, why, why they're suffering. That they're suffering in the world because God 
was going to suffer for us. He knew the only way to break the spell of sin and death. The only ultimate answer to wickedness was not to turn swords into jello and bullets into spitballs, but to turn hard hearts of sinful, wicked people into his children with hearts of flesh that respond to his grace. So his answer is not to change the world from the outside, but to change it from the inside by transforming the hearts and lives of wicked people into his children. And that's what he's doing every day throughout the world. And it is a slow process, right? In my life, it is a slow process. But through the death of Christ, that is exactly what God is doing to bring uh, ultimate deliverance to the world so that Christ will one day fill up every prophecy, will complete and bring to fullness and completion every picture and every pattern throughout all of Scripture. Let's pray. The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.